Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of A Bad Defense is the Worst Offense. By the way, today is Friday, May 15th, 2020. Today is Priesthood Restoration Day. It was on this day, May 15th in 1829, 191 years ago, if I have my math correct, that John the Baptist appeared and conferred on Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery the Aaronic Priesthood on the banks of the Susquehanna River. So I didn't want to let today go by without making that announcement. In tonight's episode, I continue my conversation with Jonathan Streeter from Thinker of Thoughts and Stuff on the subject of Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy, and specifically the incident involving his plural marriage to the daughter of Elizabeth Whitney and Newell K. Whitney, the daughter named Sarah Ann Whitney. We started talking about this fascinating story of this one plural marriage of Joseph Smith in part one, and we continue that discussion tonight in part two. There will be a part three of this discussion as well. The totality of our discussion lasted three hours, if you can believe it. That's pretty long for me. Maybe not for John DeLynn, but it's pretty long for me. So I have broken it up into three one-hour podcasts. At this point in our discussion, we were talking about the spiritual blessings and the guarantees of salvation that Joseph Smith was offering not only to Sarah Ann Whitney if she married him, but also to her parents, Newell K. Whitney and Elizabeth Whitney, that if the parents agreed to give Joseph Smith their nubile young daughter as a plural wife, then their salvation and indeed their exaltation would be assured. It was in the bag. They would be in like Flynn. We also talked a little bit about Sarah Ann's brother, Horace Whitney, how Joseph Smith considered that Horace might have a problem if he found out that his sister, Sarah Ann, was marrying a guy 20 years older than she was, i.e. Joseph Smith, and a guy who was already married to at least one other woman that everybody knew about, being Emma Smith. So Horace was sent out of town on another errand in order to prevent him from finding out about it. But even if Horace did manage to find out about it, even if Horace did have a problem with it, even if Horace left the church over it, that Horace's exaltation would still be guaranteed by virtue of the fact that Sarah Ann's parents had allowed Joseph Smith to marry their daughter. All bases were covered. All bets were hedged. And this is where we pick up the conversation in part two. Play the tape. And, and you raise a great point of like, what could Joseph do to convince the mom that this thing, which seems reprehensible and abominable, was good and that she should sacrifice her daughter in this way? And I think if we look at the revelation and consider what, the, what these faithful people would have considered a revelation to be upon them, and that God, the creator of the universe, was actually taking time out of his day to talk to them specifically, and, and the, the blessings that they'd have, we may be able to understand some of the persuasive power that Joseph would have had over Elizabeth. So let's take a look. I found the revelation. It's on the Joseph Smith Papers website. I'm going to put a copy to the link in the uh, comments here. And you can see, we don't have the original original, but we have a transcript that's in the Church History Library, donated by the family. You can see the source notes on it. And what you got to just realize here is that this is Joseph Smith channeling God to these people who he's trying to persuade to be okay with him marrying their 17-year-old daughter. 27th of Wednesday, July 1842. So this is, you know, a couple months, uh, a month before that clandestine letter. And this is, you know, probably what went into convincing the parents. 
So this is God, the creator of the universe, talking. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto my servant, Newell K. Whitney, the thing that my servant Joseph Smith has made known unto you and your family, and which you have agreed upon, is right in mine eyes, and shall be crowned upon your heads with honor and immortality and eternal life to all your house, both old and young. So right there, right at the beginning, you have God saying, you know, this thing that you thought maybe you weren't sure, it's good. It's got my stamp of approval. And not only that, your salvation, your honor and immortality and eternal life are now guaranteed. And your entire house, old and young. So Horace, don't worry about it. He's, he's in. Because of the lineage of my priesthood, saith the Lord... And this is where I guess Joseph can't figure out whether he's talking in first person or third person. I'm not sure. Because of the lineage of my priesthood, saith the Lord, it shall be upon you and upon your children after you from generation to generation by virtue of the holy promise which I now make unto you, saith the Lord. So you've got echoes of the... um, the, the promises of Abraham and the covenant of Abraham and that his you know seed. So I think Joseph channeling God knows how to bring in all of these scriptural sounding threads. Or maybe it really is God talking. You know, I have to allow that possibility. Um, these are the words which you shall pronounce upon my servant and your daughter, Sarah Ann Whitney. So now we've got, you know, ideally this would be where we now hear the temple marriage ceremony that we would all be familiar with in the temple because God himself is telling him, and we know that the marriage temple ceremony is a restoration of old things, so we should be hearing now the verbiage that we're using in the temple ceremony, unless you can think of a reason why we shouldn't. Any any ideas? Uh, maybe because, I'm just guessing, because Joseph Smith hadn't created it yet. Uh, well, yeah, but this is God talking. God knows it. But line, I take your point. Line upon line. Line upon line, uh, man. Okay. Precept on precept. Okay, so this is now the words of the original Mormon marriage ceremony, the earliest that we have recorded. And presumably, because Joseph also gave the words of the marriage ceremony to uh, Fanny Alger's, what, uncle or whatever that gave him to her, so it would have been the same thing. I don't know. All right, so this is what he says. They shall take each other by the hand, and you shall say, you both mutually agree, calling them by name, to be each other's... (laughs) To be each other's companion so long as you both shall live. So we've identified now this marriage is for both time, because that's so long as you both shall live, time. Preserving yourself for each other and from all others, and also throughout eternity, reserving only those rights which have been given to my servant Joseph by revelation and commandment and by legal authority in times past. Can I can I break in for just yes, a second? I'm really sorry because I'm understanding this is a revelation that's being given through Joseph Smith basically to Newell Whitney, and Newell Whitney is the one who's going to perform the ceremony marrying Joseph and his daughter Sarah. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So why does it have in here, just a question, why does it have in here to both of them preserving yourselves for each other and from all others? Does that mean Joseph's not going to have sex with them anymore? Clearly not, because there's babies be bouncing after this one from Emma. But um, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Well, Joseph wasn't perfect. He may have transcribed that part wrong. Maybe, uh, but, the, but deal, the deal is, is that this mirrors the normal marriage ceremony, but it, but that uh, that particular clause rings false in the context of this plural marriage ceremony. 
Yeah. Uh, preserving yourselves for each other and from all others. And I, I agree with you because there's this concept that comes up later when the actual temple ceremony happens, which is that the women give themselves to the men and the men receive the women. And that creates a unilateral link between the man and the woman in which the woman is exclusively bound to the man, but the man is free to receive other women. You know, you can only give yourself to one person, but you can receive multiple people as a man. And so that is nowhere in this. this, As you reflect on it, I agree with you. This seems to mirror the conventional concept of marriage at that time. And specifically, when they're talking about preserving yourselves for each other, that's just code language for you're not going to have sex with anyone else. Right. Um, And the other thing, to be each other's companion so long as you both shall live. I mean, the only time you can see her is clandestinely at night on occasion when Emma's not around. They are not being each other's companion so long as they both shall live. Well, they just forgot the part, so long as you both shall live and Emma's not around. He just accidentally left that out. That's in the fine print. But by the way, getting to the main point that you're, you're trying to make, that it's for time, as long as you both shall live, and also throughout eternity. So it's for time and eternity. Yeah. And that becomes important when we get to the latter part of this discussion, which treats the subject of uh, polyandry. All right. So, uh, oh, reserving all... Way, yeah, this mm-hmm. part, too, because maybe this gets to the question about whether that part about... Um, Preserving yourselves for each other and from all others applies to Joseph because there appears to be a reservation of that clause as it applies to Joseph, Mm. maybe in this next language. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, throughout all eternity, reserving only those rights which have been given to my servant Joseph by revelation and commandment and by legal authority in times past. Now, what do you suppose? Now, revelation and commandment, I could understand because... You know, the idea is that if God commands Joseph to do something which violates the anti-bigamy statutes or any other thing, well, he got to do it because, you know, God commanded it. But what is this legal authority? Well, especially in the context of a marriage ceremony, it's saying you have to preserve yourselves for each other's, for each other, right? Both of you have to mm-hmm. preserve yourselves for each other, uh, except for Joseph. Because yeah. why would you have a reservation of rights in a marriage ceremony? <laughs> I mean, really, reserving to Joseph by those rights that he's already received by revelation and commandment and by oh. legal authority in times past. Well, maybe that's just referring to his legal marriage to Emma, you know, reserving except for the rights and stuff that he has with Emma in the legal marriage. Right. Maybe it is, except we know that he, he was married to a number of other women prior to this marriage with Sarah. That's why revelation and commandment have to be in there. Oh, yeah, that's true. You know, I just, I didn't realize the necessity of that clause um, for the reality of what happened in plural marriage there. But you're right. Those, that caveat does have to exist there because if Sarah Ann ever gets uppity and she's like, wait a second, you said that you were my man. Like, hold hold on. Let's pull out that revelation here. You see that part right there? It says except for these other things. So you got to just sit in your place. That's uh, that's how it is. Anyway. <clears throat> okay. So now the God is telling Whitney, or Joseph is telling Whitney what God's telling Whitney to do. All right. Uh, if you both agree to covenant and to do this, then I give you S.A. Whitney, Sarah and Whitney, my daughter, to Joseph Smith to be his wife, to observe all the rights between you both that belong to that condition. Wow. I do it in... 
What are all the rights that belong to the condition of marriage, Jonathan? Uh, uh, oh, well, she's obviously going to inherit part of his uh, vast wealth holdings. Yeah, absolutely. But what are all the rights that, can, that, that belong to the condition of marriage? Let's put it this they way. They can Joseph pray Smith together. When Joseph Smith is out there and he's on the lamb from the law and hiding out for, from extradition officers, and he has Sarah come out to him, that's what we call in the business a conjugal visit. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, it's just his right. I mean, they already agreed to it. God himself was the one that bound these words to Bishop Whitney. So if Whitney later balks and like, you know, Joseph, I don't think it's a good idea for you to point my daughter in the middle of the cornfield here. He'll be like, well, God said we could. All right, so God says next, I do it, all right, so God's telling Whitney, I do it in my own name and in the name of my wife, your mother, and in the name of my holy progenitors by the right of birth, which is of priesthood vested. Dear Lord, can you imagine being Newell Whitney and having to say this crap under these circumstances? <laughs> can you I'm imagine not done. that? You're not done? Priest, There's more? Priesthood, vest, priesthood vested in me by revelation and commandment and the promise of the living God, obtained by the holy Melchizedek, Jethro, and others of the holy fathers, commanding in the name of the Lord all those powers to concentrate in you and through you to your posterity forever. He's talking to Joseph and Sarah and talking about their posterity, so... And I'm sorry, uh, that was that was page two. I didn't realize yeah, there was more. Yeah, we only yeah. have one or two lines left. Uh, and I agree with you. I just can't imagine. I mean, so Whitney had to say all these things. But just imagine not only that, but just the, the cojones on Joseph writing or dictating this stuff uh, as the voice of God. You know, all these things I do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that through his order... Through this order, he may be glorified, and that through the power of anointing, David may reign king over Israel, which shall hereafter be revealed. Let immortality and eternal life henceforth be sealed upon your heads forever and ever. Can I say a couple things? Please. First off, you're doing a great job reading this. I love it. <laughs> second off, second off, I do note what you had, you had mentioned. I think I interrupted you. Uh, which is part of this, this marriage presumes posterity. Mm-hmm. And through you, all those powers to concentrate in you and through you to your posterity forever. Okay? So whether they actually had kids, I don't know. But obviously, this marriage ceremony presumes that they will be uh, enjoying all the rights pertaining to the condition of marriage, which would naturally produce children, if you right. know what I mean. That's part yeah. of the deal. And also, what was the other thing? Um, uh, well, that was the main thing. But yes, in the name of Jesus Christ, through this order, he may be glorified. And oh, the other thing is at the very end. Remember one of those, uh, the seven heresies that uh, Bruce R. McConkie had to address in his 1980 or 1981 speech at BYU, right? And one mm-hmm. of them is this confusion that exists in the minds of, of a lot of Latter-day Saints that when you are married in the temple, when you're sealed there, that that is the same thing as having your calling and election made sure. And he mm-hmm. identifies that as one of the heresies, remember? And he says, no, it's not. It's not that at all. They're completely separate things. Get this idea out of your head. Well, look at what happens here in this transcript because they appear to be 
joined together. He's just being married. Joseph is being married to Sarah Pratt. And in these words by Revelation, the very last line of this is, let immortality and eternal life henceforth be sealed upon your yeah. heads forever and ever. So in this yeah. very earliest marriage, it appears that uh, eternal marriage was linked with having your calling election made sure. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And not only that, but this speaks then, you know, how powerful would this coming from the prophet be in persuading a mother to allow their daughter to be joined to the prophet? Because, you know, as a parent, you're concerned about not only the temporal, but also the spiritual well-being of your children. And if this act guarantees them a place in heaven, and all you have to do is just say yes, then if you, you know, to the extent that you believe this man to be a man of God, that is going to be very powerfully persuasive, because not only are you doing this, you're now bound to the prophet, and you're doing, it's almost like the more egregious and abominable it is, the greater your sacrifice, and so the stronger your demonstration of commitment, and the, the more blessing you should receive. Right, and I think this is one of the reasons that Joseph Smith tends to emphasize the Abrahamic sacrifice in his mm -hmm. later years, because um, I can't point to the exact language, so I apologize for that. I am not an expert in this field, but the Abrahamic sacrifice seems to come up again and again, where likening the story of Abraham being commanded to actually sacrifice his son gets recapitulated and reused in order to talk yeah. to parents about sacrificing their daughters to be married to Joseph Smith. Yeah, and, and the thing is, that thing that you just put your finger on, the Abrahamic sacrifice, that is not new to religious organizations trying to compel people to do things that are against their conscience. That is the most frequent theme that you're going to come up with when you discover a religious charlatan that has induced their followers to do crazy crap. It, they'll say it was an Abrahamic test. Now, the, the whole point of the Abrahamic test is to get you to, to subvert your conventional morals in the name of a higher value. And that higher value is devotion to God and devotion to the man who claims to speak for God and to be God's representative. And so if you look, there's a great documentary on the, um, the Branch Davidians headed by uh, David Koresh. It's a docudrama. It reenacts things that happened in the Branch Davidian Waco standoff and leading up to it, um, drawing upon the experiences of people who survived it. And it's just a brilliant exposition of the type of charisma that can be employed by a man claiming a divine calling. And he, you know, you can hear the discussions of the followers talking about the type of test that they are enduring by submitting to the demands of David Koresh. In, in the case of David Koresh, he absolved all of their civil marriages and made all of the women in his group sexually available to him, and he claimed he was taking upon himself the obligation of sex. And it was specifically because he had to produce 24 of the elders for that were foretold in the book of Revelation, so there was a theological framework for it. So the people who submitted to this Abrahamic test, which caused them to go to against all of their conventional moral norms, felt like they were sacrificing for a higher purpose, and then the leader was able to then have sexual access that he even said, you know, I, I don't enjoy it. It's just fulfilling revelation. 
And I just hear so many echoes of the type of excuses that are given for Joseph Smith. He didn't want to do plural marriage, but, you know, he had to create a dynasty. And, you know, we hear Professor Park talk about, you know, he's binding and sealing families together, and it was so necessary for salvation and the restoration. In the end, it's just levers and mechanisms drawn from biblical precedent that can be used to exploit the piety of people who just want to serve God. A lot of people have that first name. Abraham? Yeah. Well, no. My client. Britain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That David Horish didn't think he had to produce the 144,000 high priests mentioned in the book of Revelation. No, No, it was just 24 elders. That's what Mormons are going to be doing in the celestial kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're going to be doing like billions of names of temple work. It's going to take more than a thousand years. Persistent dunking. All right. So, uh, let's continue so we can get to the end of Professor Park's piece. You want to continue? I liked listening to you read. Where are we at? Where are we at? Where are we? Um, oh, gosh. There's so much. I'm going to okay. read through this quickly. We, we're, we're actually kind of jumping ahead. But let's go ahead. Smith and Turn relished. We did relished the new association. We did that. But the Whitney family okay. had its own struggles. We did that. But then, of course, there was Sarah herself. So, you know, yes. let's not forget Sarah. You know, she's kind of involved in this whole thing. She's the pawn being moved around. Yeah. But then, of course, there was Sarah herself, only 17 years old at the time. There he got to it. That's where he got to it, Jonathan. Uh, okay. okay, no, you're right. Yeah, only 17 years old at the time and by all accounts, well-liked by her peers. This was an event that would change the course for her whole life. He's the master of understatement there. Even while she was initiated into the Mormon churches. What the? Mormon church? Professor Park, what are you doing? <laughs> Even this while was she back was, in 2017. We can forgive him. Okay. Even while she was initiated into the Mormon church's inner circle and linked forever to the faith's prophet, she must have known that she risked alienation from everyday life. Could she survive as the secret wife of an already much married man? Hello? That is a great there? term. That is a great term, much married. Yeah, it's also the name of a book. A much married man. I haven't read it. But I've saw, I've seen really? the title for I didn't it. Yeah, much married man. Okay. It's probably also a, a common phrase that I've never heard before either. But there had to be compensation. Damn it. There had to be compensation. It's not enough for me to be in the inner circle. It's not enough for me to be married to the prophet and have salvation. There had to be compensation. Six weeks after the secret sealing and two weeks after Smith's request for a clandestine meeting, Smith deeded to Sarah a lot of land, only one block from his own. So now, apparently, Smith, Joseph Smith is giving Sarah property in exchange for marrying him. Yes. And I will tell you, this is not the only instance of that. As a matter of fact, you can go back and find Uh, a number of property transfers to women who happen to be Joseph Smith's plural wives. And when you look at the map of Nauvoo and you map out where the property is, they're all being positioned around Joseph Smith's home property. So when you think of like, you know, Warren Jeffs or these other polygamists who try to create little enclaves where all their plural wives are, it's essentially Joseph Smith is doing that. And I don't want to be rude here, Jonathan, so I hope – I'm serious. I don't want to be rude here. But as soon as something like this happens, Joseph Smith is turning Sarah into a prostitute. 
Yeah, well, it's a it's it's a weird thing because it's a it's like a it's prostitution but with a religious flavor and it's you know oh it was spiritual prostitution before yeah. you marry me and you'll be and your family will be saved but now it's just becoming regular everyday ordinary prostitution here's some well, land you know you're it could be dowry or is that how that works hold on no the no, dowry is what the woman is supposed to bring to the husband in the marriage yeah crap uh, <laughs> it's reverse dowry <laughs> it's spiritual the dowry, dowry. The dowry was under the petticoats. Bam! All right, anyway. Yeah, I came up with the expression spiritual dowry. Whenever it's used, I need 25 cents. Thank you, okay. Brian Hales. It was rare for a woman to own land in Nauvoo, especially a woman as young as Sarah. Indeed, it was so rare that whoever filled out the deed had to strike out his and write in hers to match the inheritor's gender. Yeah. Okay, so it's a very rare thing, but land would not be enough. Man, this Sarah is really persistent. She's got Joseph right where she wants him. You get start to get that... A, impression but land was not enough financial security however tenuous was one thing but sarah's social life was now exceptionally more complicated as a secret bride of the prophet she was not available for courtship on the very eve of entering womanhood imagine when the cutest guy from high school you know the quarterback from high school asks you out to the prom and you've got to say no that must have been really really a downer for sarah okay hold on before you go any further i I gotta try i gotta check something okay Okay. so I, they, Professor Park, in his excellent uh, way, gave us a link to the deed, all right? And we can read the deed. I've got it up on the screen now. And it says that um, they're, they're deeding to Sarah Ann Whitney, lot number two in block number 139 of the city of Nodvu. So the, the thing we need to look at is block number 139. Now, I happen to have the map of Nauvoo with those blocks that I think I can pull up here. So we're going to find block 139, and we're going to take a look at where it is in relation to Joseph Smith's property. So there's the map there. Any of you are familiar with the, the thing, you can see right here in block 117 is the Nauvoo Mansion House. You've got um, the uh, red brick store is just a block away. So it, basically exactly across the street and cat corner is block 139. And she's in lot two. So she she's now within one block of Joseph Smith's residence. So he put her right next to her. All right. So... Let's go ahead and go back to where we were with Professor Park. Sorry, I was just looking at the deed as well. Yeah. Uh, One of the projects I hope to be able to release when I get it all compiled is basically a list of all Joseph Smith's plural marriages and then a map that shows the property that he placed them at in gifting them some of these uh, lots of land. And you can see that there's a very intentional um, pattern there. That sounds excellent. I'm sorry, I'm sitting here reading too. It it goes on to say, as a secret bride of the prophet, she was not available for courtship. She can't go to the prom on the very eve of entering womanhood. Beyond the disappointment of having no future marital prospects... Her single status, coupled with a refusal to consider suitors, was bound to raise suspicions. 
So when the quarterback asks her out to the prom and she says no, and then everybody else at the high school invites her to the prom, she says no to everybody. She's not showing up to any of the proms, none of the dances. She is staying at home alone by herself, and that's going to start raising some suspicions. Of course, it would only raise suspicions if word is starting to get out and rumors are spreading about Joseph Smith practicing plural marriage. Otherwise, she would just seem like an antisocial kind of introverted wallflower type of person. But no, it's going to raise suspicions because word is getting out. But a solution was struck the following spring. Can you read that for us, Jonathan? Yeah, so a solution was struck the following spring. Her sister, Caroline, died while giving birth that October, leaving her husband, Joseph Kingsbury, a widower. He was crestfallen and left to raise their young son. But Joseph Smith made the most of the situation. He proposed a civil union between Sarah and Kingsbury. Never let a crisis go to waste, Jonathan. (laughs) Never. This guy is smart. Joseph, you got to hand it to him. He can see an opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Uh, He proposed a civil union between Sarah and Kingsbury. This would officially take Sarah off the market. And in return, Smith promised Kingsbury the chance to be sealed to his deceased wife. Once again, there's that exchange of eternal life for doing what I want you to do, even though it's unconscionable. Nobody's going to willingly do this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, And you think about it, you know. Kingsbury probably had no idea that his relationship with his wife in the eternities was jeopardized. And then suddenly Joseph Smith comes along. He's like, you know, it, gosh, it's it's a shame that you didn't get sealed by the uh, eternal power with which I hold. Uh, and then Kingsbury's like, uh, what are you talking about? Oh, you know, marriages that are only sealed by legal authority, they're pretty much garbage in the future. So you really have no link to your wife. And the, well, I didn't know how 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 can I? Well, you know, if you were to get sealed, you know, if I if I could give you blessing sealing for the dead, then you would have it. But I can't do that unless you's gonna you know enter into a sham pretend marriage with this chica over here. So do what that I can have access to her bloomers every time I want. And it's just like you know, it's religious extortion using your eternal relationship with your spouse as the the bait. Yeah, and if I'm understanding this correctly, not only does, does this solve the problem, by the way, notice it doesn't solve Sarah's problem with her social life, okay? She's still not going to be able to uh, go out to the dances or be courted by suitors. It's just that she's going to be officially taken off the market so that Joseph's problem is going to be solved about the rumors that could spread because she's not being courted by suitors like other girls her age. And it doesn't only take Sarah off the market, right? It also takes Kingsbury off the market. I mean, this is not a lark for Kingsbury. I've got to presume that part of the deal is that this is just a sham relationship and that Kingsbury is not supposed to be having sexual relations with his wife, Sarah, his new wife, Sarah, his second wife, Sarah, because that's really Joseph Smith's plural wife. So it's a, it's a total sham. Kingsbury's off the market. Uh, I don't think, unless he's going to be doing plural marriage, that he can get married to somebody else, that he can actually have a real relationship as a uh, a second wife. And by that, I mean a second wife after his first wife had passed away. This would officially take Sarah off the market. And you said, in return, promise Kingsbury the chance to be sealed to his deceased wife. That's where you left off. You want to take it from there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> thy companion, Caroline, who is now dead, the prophet blessed Kingsbury in late March, yeah. Yeah, thanks for the reminder, by the way. I didn't know she was dead. Thanks for reminding me. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Thou shalt have in the first resurrection. Uh, 
By helping Smith handle a difficult situation, Kingsbury was rewarded by being one of the very first Mormons to be sealed to a deceased spouse. Smith officiated over what Kingsbury later called a pretended marriage between him and Sarah the following month. Right. It's a pretended marriage. This is one of the first sealings to a deceased spouse. This is something that happens all the time in the LDS church today in temples. But it is remarkable to go back in time and with this history provided by Professor Park, thank you very much, to be able to see the genesis of this ordinance of a living person being sealed to a deceased spouse. Where does it come from? It's like Lindsay Hanson Park once said in her her great uh, podcast series, A Year in Polygamy. Mm-hmm. Everything in the Mormon church always goes back to polygamy. If you trace it back far enough, everything goes back to polygamy. And the same is true here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where there was, an, there was a reason that was expedient in order to protect Joseph that this had to be done. So <clears throat> I thought it would be interesting to find out where they get that account from Joseph Kingsbury. And it turns out that he has an autobiography or a journal that they link to at the Joseph Smith Papers Project, but it only contains a very short snippet about the blessing given to Kingsbury by Joseph. And you can go and dig in the church history library, find the original pages, or I think it's actually the university, USU library. And um, so I, I ripped it and put it up on archive.org so you can actually see it in context. And I've got it up on the screen now because it's the guy, I actually feel like Kingsbury was a decent guy. Um, um, let's see here. He talks about being an employee in Joseph Smith's store under the direction of New K. Whitney until the fall of 1842. On the 16th day of October, Caroline, my wife, died after a severe sickness of three months and being delivered of a son the same day of her death, which lived 13 hours. Uh, his name is Newell. I remain alone and felt as though I had lost some part of myself, for truly she was a great helpmeet to me and... How thankful I feel thinking I shall see and meet her again to enjoy each other's society forever, to part no more, and also my two little sons, Joseph and Newell. For my desire is to live long upon the earth to see that all things are prepared to meet them all in the celestial kingdom. And now, remember, he's writing this later after he's already received this blessing. So he's speaking now out of the hope that he's been guaranteed by submitting to Joseph's plan. Um, it, so the, the hope of the celestial kingdom of glory in the presence of God standing at the head according to the order of God. And on the 29th of April, 1843, I, according to President Joseph Smith's counsel and others, agreed to stand by Sarah Ann Whitney as supposed to be her husband and had a pretended marriage for the purpose of bringing about the purposes of God in these last days. So spoken by the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and also Joseph Smith. And Sarah Ann should receive a great glory, honor, and eternal lives. And I should receive a great glory, honor, and eternal lives to the full desire of my heart in having my companion Caroline in the first resurrection to gain her and no one to have power to take her from me. Now, he's speaking there about them all getting together and two promises being given, one to to um, Sarah Ann and another to him. And we're going to read Professor Parks say that he's making an assumption, but I think that he almost underplays how powerful that idea is when you listen to Kingsbury describe that meeting. 
he goes on to say, both shall be crowned and enthroned together in the celestial kingdom of God, enjoying each other's society in all of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And little ones with us is, is recorded in this blessing that President Joseph Smith sealed upon my head on the 23rd day of March, 1843, as follows. Now, that day is the day after, if I recall correctly, Sarah Ann's 18th birthday, and it's also the date of the blessing given to Sarah Ann, which ties all of these events together. The blessing we're going to see being given to Sarah Ann is on the same day, and since they're all meeting together, it's safely assumed the same meeting as this blessing given to Kingsbury. This is the blessing. Uh, <clears throat> Brother Joseph, I lay my hands upon thy head in the name of Jesus Christ to, dis- to bestow upon thee a patriarchal blessing according to the power and authority of the holy priesthood vested in me. I say unto thee that thou shalt be blessed with the good things of this world abundantly in thy lifetime, and I seal thee up to come forth in the first resurrection unto eternal life. And thy companion Caroline, who is now dead, thou shalt have in the first resurrection. I seal thee up for and in behalf to come forth in the first resurrection unto eternal lives, and it shall be as though she was present herself. And thou shalt hail her, and she shall be thine, and no one shall have power to take her from thee. And you both shall be crowned and enthroned to dwell together in a kingdom in the celestial glory in the presence of God. And you shall enjoy each other's society and embrace in all the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ." Uh, worlds without end, and I seal these blessings upon thee and for thy companion in the name of Jesus Christ, for thou shalt receive the holy anointing and endowment in this life to prepare you for all these blessings. Even so, amen. Witnesses to the above blessing were Newell K. Whitney, Elizabeth Ann Whitney, and Sarah Ann Whitney, showing that they were all present about this. And then he goes on to talk about his life in Nauvoo, and he repeats a few times that Sarah Ann is his pretend wife, not his real wife. And it seems that both critics and historians agree that they never consummated that marriage. So to your point that uh, it took Kingsbury off of the market, that was true until Kingsbury's basically was uh, inducted into being a polygamist himself, and so then he was back on the market. Right. So if I can try and boil this down, by the way, your research is amazing. I'm sitting here listening to it, and I've given up trying to follow the links as I as you're <laughs> jumping from one to another. But uh, absolutely fascinating. Boil down, what I see is Joseph Smith, first off, using, if I can just call it, um, oh, spiritual blackmail. That sounds so harsh. Um, extortion. No, that's not good enough. Uh, spiritual reasons, okay? Spiritual promises, uh-huh. how about that? Promises of exaltation to get Sarah to marry him and to get her parents to allow her to marry him. This goes on for like a year. Suspicions are starting to be raised in certain quarters. and So, so now Joseph Smith wants to cover up his marriage to Sarah by having her engage in a pretended marriage with this guy named Kingsbury. So Joseph Smith, actually, I looked at the um, the certificate itself while you were reading. Joseph yeah. Smith is the one who married them, by the way. Joseph Smith is yes. the one yeah. who marries <laughs> Kingsbury and Sarah, so it makes it official. And he uses the same tactic with Kingsbury to get him to marry Sarah, as Joseph Smith used with Sarah and her family to allow Joseph Smith to marry Sarah a year before, yep. which is these kinds of uh, promises of exaltation and promises of being forever with the one that you love, in his case, his first wife, Caroline. But here's what I'm thinking here, Jonathan. 
there's got to be a specific reason why Joseph Smith went to this extreme uh, step of doing this pretended marriage between Kingsbury and Sarah, right? And the question is this. Uh, Professor Park talks about suspicions in a general sense. I've got a feeling it was more than suspicions in a general sense. I think that there was at least one, if not a handful, of specific people that Joseph Smith was concerned were catching on to his relationship with Sarah and that he did this marriage in order to try and hide that fact from those people. And I will bet you dollars to donuts that one of those people was Emma. Hmm. Oh, that's an interesting uh, assertion because then, you know, if Sarah Ann and Joseph Kingsbury come by to visit, there's, there's nothing suspicious about that. And if Joseph says, oh, I'm going to check in on uh, Joseph Kingsbury. Yeah. Who happens to be married. Uh, you know, then Emma has no reason to be suspicious about that. And the only reason I say this, um, Jonathan, is because there's a lot of teenage girls that Joseph Smith is marrying who are similarly taken off the market. And they also can't go to the prom or the dances with the guys when they come to call, right? Mm -hmm. But Joseph Smith doesn't take this, ex this extreme step of a sham marriage with any of those other kids that I'm, excuse me, <laughs> those other young women that I'm aware of. So it seems to me that somebody was really hot on the tail of his relationship, his marriage with Sarah. So he does this pretend marriage with Kingsbury. Yeah, and, and it, it might be interesting to go and look and see if, uh, you know, some of those those children he married were his step or foster children or wards or whatever who were living with him. So he didn't have that difficulty. Um, and, and then you've got the, just the opportunity factor, you know, here her brother-in-law happened to be on the market and in need of somebody to help care for the baby. I guess the baby died shortly thereafter. Um, so that, you know, that's, uh, he, he saw an opportunity in this case and particularly pounced on it. Um, the, there's this paired blessing. We've got the blessing that we just heard um, Joseph Kingsbury record. But then we've got the reason that Professor Park is writing this article in the first place, which is that the church publishes this new record of uh, the blessing for um, for Sarah and Whitney. Before we get to that, I just I'm showing up on the screen now so people can see the marriage certificate for the sham pretend marriage. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be a sham pretend marriage in the eyes of the law. But this document is more legitimate in the eyes of the law than any other of Joseph's plural marriages. It says here, I hereby certify that, the, that I have upon this 29th day of April 1843 joined together in marriage Joseph Kingsbury and Sarah Ann Whitney in the city of Nauvoo, Illinois. And you've got the signature of Joseph Smith um, in this water-stained document. So, And that's one of those very rare signatures of Joseph Smith. He yeah. wrote very rarely. Uh, his signatures are extremely rare and therefore very valuable. But how yeah. funny that one of those very rare signatures of Joseph Smith should be on a certificate of a sham marriage and a marriage that was a sham in order to hide Joseph Smith's plural marriage to a teenager. Just saying. Right. And, and sham only in the minds of the people who later need it to be a sham. Uh, <laughs> and Joseph Smith needed it to be a sham right there. But like you said, that's a legal marriage. Joseph Smith had the power vested in him by the state of Illinois. I'm sure, don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure because mm -hmm. he's the elder in the church. So he can perform this marriage. So this is actually a legal marriage under the eyes of the law. 
But according to the people who are participating in it, it's a sham to cover what Joseph Smith's really up to. Yeah. So let's go, because the next paragraph, we now encounter Sarah's blessing. Do you want to continue there? Under Ki- Kingsbury was not the only person. Yeah. Kingsbury was not the only person to receive assurances from Joseph Smith, because Sarah also required extensive support. It had been seven months since she had been sealed to the prophet. Perhaps the young bride felt regrets, especially when she turned 18 on March 22nd. Though just entering adulthood, in many ways, she had already sacrificed much of her future life on behalf of her family. Was she destined to live her life as a sacerdotal martyr? And sacerdotal, if I remember correctly, has to do with priestly. Is that right, Jonathan? I don't know. Well, can you look it up while I'm reading? Sacerdotal uh, martyr. Okay. uh, Relating to priests or the priesthood. Yes, your recollection is correct. I didn't even look that one up, honest. Sacerdotal martyr. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. The day after her birthday, therefore, at the same meeting where Smith and the extended Whitney family agreed upon the pretended marriage between Sarah and Kingsbury, right? So they've already agreed upon it the day after her 18th birthday. Now Sarah receives a blessing that reaffirmed the significance of her ritual the previous summer. So just briefly here, right? So now she's been married to Joseph Smith for, I think, seven months. Now, uh, word's getting out to somebody or other that they've got something going on here, that they're actually married, Joseph and Sarah. So now they're doing the sham marriage, this pretend marriage with Kingsbury. But for some reason, Sarah apparently needs an additional blessing to reaffirm the significance of her ritual the previous summer, i.e. the significance being that that is going to make her and her family heaven-bound and there's nothing that can be done about it. They are going to celestial glory because of her sacrifice. Is that what the blessing yeah. says, Jonathan? Well, we're going to get to that in a second. But I think you put your finger on a very important point here, which I, I think at this particular moment where you can imagine her, she is pretty much the victim of Joseph Smith's machinations. You know, she didn't She didn't say, hey, Joseph, what if I were to get a sham marriage to my brother-in-law? That would be great. You know, Joseph was the one that came to them. Is like, hey, I got a great idea. And so... You can imagine her being like, what, what does this mean for my prior marriage? Because I remember my dad said that we're supposed to preserve ourselves and the rights and privileges. And so this blessing basically assures her that despite all of these wranglings and goings on that Joseph is subjecting her to with this sham marriage, that she's still guaranteed those blessings and she doesn't have to worry about it. Right. And there's this whole thing. I know what Joseph Smith wants everybody to think, right? And I, mm-hmm. and, but, but what Sarah is thinking here, okay, is I'm married to Joseph Smith. Okay. I gave it all up. I'm married to you, Joseph. And now you want me to marry another man. This is yes. what's going on. You are inviting me uh, to be totally complicit in breaking the law, in being a bigamist, in now marrying another man. It's no wonder that Sarah required additional confirmation of her Mm -hmm. heavenly reward at this critical time in her life. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so let's go and read how Professor Park summarizes it. Then we'll take a look at it uh, ourselves. Uh, The blessing promised Sarah, and let me make this full screen. The blessing promised Sarah due to her attachment to the prophet, God would crown her with a diadem of glory in the eternal worlds. But the promises were not restricted to herself. If she remained committed to the new covenant, all her father's house shall be saved. This was a heavy assurance. 
perhaps taking into account her brother Horace, whom they were still worried would be enraged with the clandestine union. The blessing promised that if any of the family shall wander from the fold of the Lord, they shall not perish, but shall return. Due to her sealing with Smith, Sarah's entire family was guaranteed salvation, including those who fell away from the faith. In an era where Americans of all denominations worried about the state of their own soul, the whole Whitney dynasty was promised a heavenly reward. Perhaps Sarah's sacrifice was worth the cost. And uh, he includes a scan there, but let's let's take a look at that. Now, <clears throat> you, you made a point earlier about Joseph using these promises, uh, these spiritual promises, not extortion, but but promises to persuade people. And you can see at every juncture, He's got to. He's got to do that. It's like, hey, Elizabeth Whitney, I want your daughter. Oh, you don't. You don't like that. Well, how about, boom, your your town, your eternal family is going to be sealed in heaven. You're good to go. All right, we're good to go. Hey, Horace, I need you to have a sham marriage with this lady who I'm secretly married. You don't like that. All right. Well, boom, you're going to have eternal, you know, resurrection with your dead wife. It's going to be great. No, actually, that was and Kingsburg. then it's like that was actually Kingsburg. No, no, you're you right. It's Kingsbury. You said Horace. <laughs> okay. No. Yeah. No. With Horace, it's like, hey, Horace, go on a mission. Go, go, go visit your relatives up in the in the West. Just, no reason. Just do it. And then, and then you got, you know, Helen or Sarah Ann. It's like, hey, Sarah Ann, you got a problem with me making you marry this other creepy guy? Well, boom, you're gonna get. Even if your family falls away, you're gonna get eternal blessings, and they're gonna come back. And it's like he can always use the afterlife to convince people to go along with his stuff, and he's the only one can do it because he he's got the power to bind on earth as it is in heaven, and nobody else has that power. And when you're talking to people whose conception, whose metaphysical and religious worldview is tied up in an urgency to feel secure about the hereafter, that is some of the most powerful. Uh, levers that you can, you know, pull to get people to do it. So, let's look at uh, Nauvoo City, March 23rd, 1843. We now have another example of Joseph Smith's handwriting. Now, if you look at the source note here, um, and historical introduction, let's see. So, they were originally married on 27, 1842. It says, it is unknown what prompted the creation of this document, nor is it known how Whitney understood or interpreted it. The document was preserved by the Whitney family until it was donated by Whitney's nephew, Orson Whitney, to Joseph F. Smith in 1912. So this document stayed, you know, decades with the Whitney family. Nobody else really knew about it. And then uh, it was donated to the church, and they're kept under restricted access in the church history records until, I think, Michael Markhart in the 19th. 1970s somehow got uh, enough information to piece all of these bits of uh, data together to to depict this remarkable story of this sham marriage. So um, the revelation itself, let's take a look at. And uh, Nauvoo City, March 23rd, 1843. O Lord, my God, thou that dwellest on high, bless, I beseech of thee, the one into whose hands this may fall, and crown her with a diadem of glory in the eternal worlds. Well, you know, diadems are a girl's best friend. <laughs> what What is a diadem? Now, um, it, it, for me, it, it seems to be yeah. like a, is it a jewel or is it a crown? I think a diadem um, is a jewel that's frequently found in a crown. I don't know. I'm going okay. off my recollection of reading Ezra, what is it, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs novels when I was a kid. 
Okay, so I googled it. A, a, crown, a jeweled crown or headband worn as a symbol of sovereignty. And so here we have allusions to the fact that in Joseph's theological paradigm, people are crowned as kings and queens, priests and priestesses. And um, you hear this also when you listen to uh, Violet Kimball talk about um, you know, how she was okay with, um, with her husband taking multiple wives. And it, she accepted this idea that it's going to increase her crowns of glory or her, her glory in the hereafter. Um, I think you said clowns of glory. Did you mean to clowns, say that? <laughs> it must have been an artifact with the, with the, uh, with the audio. Okay. So, <laughs> oh, let it be... Let it be sealed this day on high. And again, Joseph is really, this whole notion of sealing, it sounds so great, but what it is, it's all arrows pointing back to him as the prophet, as the one who has the power and authority to seal on earth as it is in heaven. So he's got to use this concept of sealing because that is something that is exclusive to him. And it centers power and attention on him and allows him to persuade people because he's able to claim to seal these things in the hereafter. Let it be sealed this day on high, that she shall come forth in the first resurrection to receive the same, and verily it shall be so, saith the Lord, if she remain in the everlasting covenant to the end, and also her father's house shall be saved in the same eternal glory, and if any of them shall wander from the fold of the Lord, they shall not perish, but shall return, saith the Lord, and be saved in and by repentance." be crowned with all the fullness of the glory of the everlasting gospel. These promises I seal upon all their heads in the name of Jesus Christ, by the law of the holy priesthood, even so, amen. Now, you can see the types of promises that are mirrored with the other examples we've given in this story of how Joseph used this promise of sealing to persuade people at every juncture. But I feel like the context of it is really illuminated by that journal entry from Joseph Kingsbury where he talks about, and he pairs, you know, Sarah Ann got this blessing and I got my blessing. And then we agreed to enter into this marriage, which is a pretend marriage. All right. So I right. think and what we've reached... Oh, Go sorry. ahead. I was going to say this whole idea also about the idea that if any of your family members or even if you, as long as you stay in the everlasting covenant, as long as you stay married to me, you will be resurrected and you will be exalted. You'll come forth in the first resurrection. Any of your family members, even if they leave the church, even if they go astray, even if they become apostate like Jonathan Streeter, even then they're still going to be saved by virtue of your marrying me, Sarah. And so once again, this is where we get this idea in the church that we hear from time to time of the tentacles of divine love, that there is a power in being sealed as a man and wife in the temple that will go to your children, that even if your children go astray and die outside the church, eventually the tentacles of divine love will reach after them and they will be brought back into the celestial kingdom. They will be saved eventually. By the way, interesting fact, that statement, the one that gets quoted even now and then, even today in conference, right, mm -hmm. goes back to Orson F. Whitney, I believe. He's the one who did the tentacles of divine love. It's like really? 20,000 okay. years under the sea, uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea, <laughs> right, with the tentacles of divine love and Captain Nemo. Or, right. You're going to be mine. But yeah, Orson F. Whitney is the son of Horace Whitney. Yes, that Horace Whitney, who was the brother of Sarah Whitney. And so you can see where it is that Orson F. Whitney might have gotten this idea 
since he was the one yeah, who had possession of this document. Exactly. Yes. Very good. Um, I read an, a blog post about this theme of your children being saved, saying that, you know, even though leaders have taught that in the past, and you can trace it back to, to um, this document, David Bednar has come out recently and said that idea is not correct, and that, you know, that betrays agency, which is his favorite, you know, gospel hobby. And and you can look at the text here, and, and it, it does say that he's going to be saved by repentance, and so there's going to require some effort on the part of the person. They're not just simply saved. But um, th- what the thing about that whole theme and that whole thread is that what it serves the church's purposes for today is that if a family member has a child go astray, it saves them the anguish of really having to deal with that. They don't have to really do much study or work to, you know, why did my child choose to reject Joseph in the gospel? Maybe I need to go and and figure it out so that I can help them or whatever. They can just say, you know what? As long as I'm faithful, and this I think Holland has said that before, as long as I'm faithful, then we're going to, they're going to be okay. So it almost makes now the people who remain in the church when family members leave bound closer and stronger to the church because they believe now that they are going to be the saving link for their wayward family members. Right. Good point. And, you know, that's always been the problem that I've had whenever I've heard this statement about the tentacles of divine love. It's always nice, you know, especially if you got a wayward kid, right? It's a nice comfort. The problem with it is theologically, it does completely do away with the concept of agency. And so I think that that is what in one of the articles of faith, right? We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. We are agents unto ourselves to choose between the good and the evil. And we got to take the consequences that go with that. But Joseph Smith is willing to totally abridge his doctrine in the articles of faith. I guess the articles of faith are written in 1842, but still it's the idea that's there. This agency that people have and they're responsible for their own acts He's willing to completely throw that out the window if he can make a promise to Sarah and her family that will keep her as his wife. Yeah. You know, men will be punished for their own sins, but they could be saved if they got a cute sister or what's going to be sealed to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Park, hey, it wasn't the end of Park's article. That was just the vi- the, the video there. So let's keep going with Professor Park. You want to continue? Hearing the blessing was not enough. Oh, shoot. Let's see here. I have been jumping back and forth so Okay, well, much. I'll continue it. I'll continue it while you look for your place. I got it. Hearing the... Oh, you got it. Okay, go. <laughs> I like hearing your voice. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Hearing the blessing was not enough. No, Sarah wanted it. Sarah wanted it in writing. This cracks me up. Okay, so it's not enough. I'm not going to believe it if Joseph Smith just says it. But if he writes it down, okay, you've got me. Now I'm all in. Sarah oh, wanted oh, it. Uh, also, and this is leverage against the prophet. You oh, know, you're th- right. Th- the fact that these guys have these stuff in writing means that the prophet now has a great incentive to make sure they stay in the fold, well taken care of, and on his side. Go ahead. It, it does. And from another point of view, you know, the this article by Professor Park says, perhaps that would make it feel more real. Yeah, I'm not sure that's really it. But also, not only do they have leverage against him, but Sarah and her family, Sarah has to be concerned about maintaining her dignity, her reputation, her mm-hmm. purity. And Joseph Smith is having her do all kinds of crap that are violating her sense of herself and her reputation, if I can use that expression. Her reputation, she wants it in writing. 
so that she has evidence that she can hold on to, store it away, maybe use if she ever needs it for any purpose, like a blue dress, to show that she yeah. is not a wanton woman, that she does yeah. have morals. Okay, perhaps yeah. that would make it all feel more real. Early Mormons believed in a literal book of the Lord, after all, where written records inaugurated eternal heavenly re rewards. So here the article is trying to say, well, maybe if it's written down on earth, it'll be written in heaven, like it says in the Doctrine and Covenants. Whether by his own volition or at Sarah's request, Smith penned the blessing on an intricate, on intricate stationery that included an ornamental shape and subtle yet defined borders. Given the prophet rarely wrote anything in his own hand, this was indeed a rare document. For Sarah, it was likely sacred, the only tangible evidence she had for the many metaphysical promises. Yeah. Yeah. The only record that we have of the promises that went along with the verbiage of the marriage ordinance itself, um, you know, right now is a typescript. I don't know that anyone has the original document. I don't, you know, presumably it survived in the family for a period of time. But um, yeah, if you go to the source note, when you look that up, that typescript, mm -hmm. it gives a pretty good pedigree uh, for that document coming down from with Orson F. Whitney. Okay. So him being an apostle to the church, they're taking it for granted that it's probably legit. Yeah, uh, and particularly in light of this document showing up later. So Right, so for whatever reason that Sarah wants this, you know, that's speculation. I don't care. I'm just glad that she had him do it because now yeah. we've got the evidence. We've got the smoking gun. Yeah. All right, so Sarah cherished the document enough that it remained within her family's possession for nearly a century. To the Whitneys, both those in Nauvoo as well as those who came after, it was a prophetic, it was prophetic and authoritative proof of their family's election. To Sarah, though, it must have felt bittersweet. It represented both the life she gave up as well as the many lives she might have saved. By the way, um, when if Sarah wants something in writing from Joseph Smith, okay, if you're Jonathan, if you're entering into mm -hmm. a deal with somebody, okay, and you trust them that they're going to do what they say and not renege on the deal, mm -hmm. do you insist do you, that they put it in writing? Uh, no, it's not not generally uh, required. But you know, th this is just so much more, though. This you know, these are we're we're talking about the eternities and. A complete change of your life and prospects in the community. I don't know. I think, well, uh, look, to me, I can't say why because I can't read her mind. But just looking at the facts as objectively as I possibly can and acknowledging my biases, uh, it indicates a lack of trust on mm -hmm. Sarah's part. She doesn't trust Joseph Smith for whatever reason uh, to follow through on his end of the bargain. Yeah, well... <laughs> At the same time, put yourself in her shoes. You know, she's seeing Joseph. She knows that he's secretly marrying other people now. And we're in, we're in 1843, so we're past the 1842 time frame where John C. Bennett and Nancy Rigdon and Sarah Brotherton and all those other rumors were out. And, and she could see not only that Joseph was publicly denying it, but that he was allowing the, the women who came forward about the truth of it that she knew from her own experience and allowing their names to be dragged through the mud. And so I think initially I was more attracted to your explanation that um, this document served as sort of a, a personal reassurance to her. Uh, but 
the the trust dimension, just knowing that he's now denouncing some of the women who he approached in the past, I think that's got to play some part in it. Right. And, and also just on a purely, um, what do you call it, um, temporal level, uh, she's got to have somebody who's going to follow through on taking care of her. Mm, yeah. She's got to, he, he has got to provide for her. He is her husband. Joseph is her husband. And she has to, or apparently feels that she wants to ensure the fact that he is going to continue to take care of her needs. Yeah. And, and to that point, there is a story, I haven't looked at the source of it, but it comes from an authoritative uh, source that Joseph Kingsbury, decades later, presents the church with a bill for like $8,000 saying, this is how much money it took for me to care and shelter my pretend wife. And the church should be responsible for refunding me for that. Um, Did they pay him off? Uh, no, no. No, the story goes that it was a, a laughable request and he did not get any money. <laughs> I'll bet they laughed at it. Kingsbury wasn't laughing, though. Okay, so that ends part two of my discussion with Jonathan Streeter from Thoughts on Things and Stuff regarding Joseph Smith and this particular incident of plural marriage, together with the guarantees of exaltation to all concerned, as well as some of the defenses that are put forward on behalf of Joseph Smith by modern-day apologists. I expect we will get more into those apologetics in part three. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.